So glad to see all of you today on this special day. Amen. Resurrection Day. What a great God we serve. Amen. Giving us another day to worship Him. Got up early this morning and, and got to see the sunrise. Something special about seeing the sunrise on Easter morning. It reminds us that every 24 hours the Lord gives us a brand new beginning. Regardless of how bad yesterday has been, hallelujah, today is a new day. And the Lord is a God of new beginnings. And we are so glad that you are with us this morning. I turn your attention to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. And we begin reading in the first verse. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, and verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He kept trying to tell them this. I, I think they were just trying to ignore this. They didn't want to believe that this was going to be the future of their Savior. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came into him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. It's really easy to run past that verse that he's at Simon the leper's house. When you had leprosy, you were ostracized from the rest of the community. Many times they had to go and live on the outskirts of the city because of the contagious nature of leprosy. And yet here's Jesus right up in the house of Simon the leper. Aren't you glad the Lord goes where nobody else wants to go and rescues people? There came into him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, poured it on his head as he sat at meat. When his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work unto me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Well, the gospel is preached here at East Wind. And so today, we want to remember this memorial that this lady did unto the Lord. And I want to talk to you today on this subject, the wings of adversity. The wings of adversity. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing it is interesting that all four gospels uh, tell the story about a lady worshiping jesus with an act of humility and a sacrifice of expensive spices every gospel tells this story matthew mark luke and john though there are some some slight deviations one thing that's always common and that is that there was expensive ointment that was used that it was a sacrifice, that it was worship, that it was an act of humility and service. It's also interesting that it's 
the ladies that are at the tomb when the resurrection is revealed. There seems to be a correlation. It's very possible that these ladies that worshipped with this type of expensive ointment are the very ladies that the gospel writers refer to that, that witnessed his resurrection. And the fact that the apostles have the first eyewitnesses of a resurrected Savior as ladies, several of them named Mary, is also a testament to the fact that this resurrection story was not contrived. Today it may not seem so strange that women were the first to see the empty tomb of Jesus or that women were the first ones to announce the empty tomb to the rest of Jesus' followers. But in the first century Greco-Roman world, women were not the messengers the world would trust to bear important news. Women were not trusted as witnesses in a court of law, in the court of public opinion, in important deliberations. And yet, the Gospels all record women beholding and telling, seeing and sharing, weeping and waiting as the promise of salvation history whispered by the Almighty to a woman back in the garden came to fruition that Sunday morning. Commentator Leon Morris lauds their courage by declaring, and I quote, against the background of the failure of the male disciples, the devotion and the courage of the women shine out. It wasn't Pilate, the freckless governor, who allowed the injustice of Jesus' death to happen, or the apostles who fled in fear, or the Roman guards who fainted as death suffered its final blow, and the scarred but whole body of Jesus was raised to triumphant life. No, it was this band of women, unremarkable, who discovered the most important square footage in all of human history, the empty space that fills human hearts. End of quote. You see, my friend, in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that even the witness of multiple women were not acceptable. So even though today, by modern standards of scholarship, the witness of these many women in seeing Jesus dying on the cross, buried and then risen, is a hard-to-refute piece of evidence for the reliability of the Gospels and the, the historicity of the resurrection, the fact that women's testimony was not received in the first century is also another piece of evidence of the validity of the witnesses' account of the resurrection. Why is that? Because the Gospel writers and the apostles and disciples who gave their lives in response to Jesus' resurrection would not have put forward the inadmissible evidence of female witnesses if they were fabricating a story. They would not have built their story based on the word of women. In fact, we know this because Jesus' disciples didn't believe Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, and the others. Luke says in the gospel that bears his name, chapter 24 and verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles, verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Another translation says, but these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe. Luke would later describe in the book of Acts as many 
convincing proofs. Later, Paul, the former skeptical Pharisee, would conclude after his investigation that over 500 witnesses saw Jesus alive after his death, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. But Paul does not include the testimony of the ladies. He's a lawyer. And he knows that their testimony would not stand up in a court of law. So in his effort to build a case for the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus, he leaves out the testimony of the ladies. Or at the very least, does not refer to them. But I'm glad that God operates much different than man does. I'm glad that God chose a bunch of ladies that weren't afraid to worship God in the form of Jesus Christ while He was still on this earth by putting spices, oh hallelujah, pouring it upon His body and the humility of wiping His feet with their hair, but they worshiped God anyhow. I'm glad that He chose those ladies to reveal to them that their faith was not in a story that was not accurate. You see, my friend, Jesus does things much different, and I'm so glad He does. I heard a story the other day that I thought was interesting. There were three men that were hiking through a forest when they came upon a large, raging, violent river. Needing to get to the other side, the first man prayed and said, God, please give me strength to cross the river. Poof, God gave him big arms and strong legs, and he was able to swim across the river. But it took him about two hours, and he almost drowned twice. After witnessing that, the second man prayed and said, God, please give me strength and the tools to cross the river. Poof, God gave him a rowboat. Strong arms and strong legs. He was able to row across in about an hour, but he almost capsized while he was getting across the river. Seeing what happened to the first two men, the third man prayed and said, God, please give me the strength, the tools, and the intelligence to cross the river. Poof, he was turned into a woman. She checked the map, hiked 100 yards upstream, and walked over the bridge. I don't know if the angel at the tomb had wings or not. I don't think they did, but every Easter drama that we've ever done here at East Wind, the angel always had wings. I see it as a metaphor. There's something really hopeful about wings in a tomb. You think of a tomb and it seems cold and dark and just the finality of it. But God has a way of putting wings in a weary land. He puts the gossamer in the grave. I, I read a story just this week about a girl who, who fell into uh, drugs and alcohol and suicide and self-mutilation because her, her idol, her hero... The person she looked up to the most, her father, did not return from the war in Iraq. And she suffered from not being good enough to continue living without her father. And she was in such depression and heartache that she literally began to spiral out of control. But her father's battle buddy, a man who served on the front lines along with her father, he returned and he found the daughter of his friend and he handed her an envelope that was from her father, that was given to him right before her father died in battle. It contained her father's dog tags and, and a note. The note began to explain how wonderful of a daughter she was and how proud that her father was of her. She read that note and began to cry. 
she began to find hope and she slowly began to get her life back together again. Oh, let me tell you, my friend, that is what the Word of God does for every one of us. It's a note from your Heavenly Father. It's a note that tells you that you are valuable. It tells you that you are the apple of His eye. It tells us that He stole victory from the grave. He took the sting out of death. He takes the betrayal out of heartache. And it's amazing to me how God reminds every one of us that He has a plan and a destiny and a calling for every one of our lives. God orchestrates even the smallest of details in our lives to equip us for the perfect will of God. In our text, the disciples criticize this lady for her worship of Jesus. Judas further tried to embarrass her by saying it could have been sold and given to the poor. One gospel records that he didn't care anything about the poor. He kept the money bag. That's what his concern was. But Jesus stepped up and said she'll be remembered throughout all of history because of what she did today. Because she is preparing for the burial. She is putting a sweet-smelling fragrance on the upcoming sorrow. Perfume is being added to the pain. And in so doing, she was reflecting what Jesus does for each one of us. He makes each one of us understand that though we may be facing adversity, that adversity is going to give us wings. That adversity is going to lift us to a higher place. That God is still at work. And as long as there is life, there is hope. Oh, my friend, I've come today to remind you that He hand-selected for each one of us our unique appearance and personality. He also gives us our unique abilities. He gives us our own wings. Jeremiah said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Oh, my friend, He has equipped each of us for our individual journeys. Oftentimes we think somebody else is better looking or more intelligent, more capable or more successful or more blessed in some way. Oh, my friend, that's a trick of the enemy who whispers doubt and turns our attention to our weaknesses instead of to the specialized abilities and mission that God has blessed us with. I've come to remind you today on this Easter morning that nobody can be a, a better you than you. God created you the way He intended for you to be. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works on everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. The custom-made attributes in each of us are oftentimes only revealed through adversity. We celebrate the resurrection today, but we do so because of the trial of the cross. Without Calvary, there would be no risen Savior. Death brought the deliverance that they were looking for. Joseph Bailey knew about death. It was a subject in which he was well tutored. His teachers had been a newborn son who died after surgery, a five-year-old son who died after leukemia, and an 18-year-old son who died after a sledding accident. Each imparted a painful lesson in the stark reality of death, a reality that he writes about in his book, The Last Thing We Talk About. In this book he records, and I quote, 
The hearse began its grievous journey many thousand years ago as a litter made of saplings, litter, sled, wagon, Cadillac. The conveyance has changed, but the corpse it carries is the same. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds. But death continues to confront us with its blank stare. Everything changes, yet death is changeless. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow. With Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, old man, the hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient. For the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares none. End of quote. Mary and Bethany knew this. She had watched her brother Lazarus battle severe sickness that turned to death. He fought it off as long as he could. Mary watched him every minute, tried to cool his fever, tried to comfort the aching bones, and watched with horror as the color slipped away from his face and his skin minute by minute. But she stuck around long enough to see Lazarus walk out of a tomb. Oh, I want to preach to somebody today. You may be going through sorrow, but if you'll stick around long enough, you're going to find that there's victory in the midst of sorrow. There's a purpose in the pain. There's joy that's coming in the morning. You just got to hang around long enough. Now John records that Lazarus is there in the house. When Jesus comes back six days before the Passover, they're sitting down for dinner. Mary can't wait. She runs into her room and gets the treasure that she's been saving. She's heard the rumors of Jesus talking about his death. She recognizes the dark cloud that's following the inner circle of his disciples. But she decides that she's going to get ahead of this. She's already been through this with her brother. She's not going to wait. She brings the expensive pound of ointment of spikenard down and pours it over the body of Jesus and then uses her hair to dry his feet. She is saying, I'm going to worship now before I can see the wings, before I can understand the purpose, before any of it is going to make sense. I'm making up my mind uh, that I'm going to worship Him while I can. Because if my brother came out of a tomb uh, at the declaration of his voice, uh, I know that Jesus is going to come out of the tomb also. I declare to you today that the issue is not the resurrection. The issue is the death. I want to say it again because I want to make sure you get this point. The issue is not the resurrection. The issue is the death. She knows that it is a foregone conclusion. If he dies, he will rise again. She knows that Peter will later proclaim on the day of Pentecost, 56 days later, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be old enough. It wasn't possible that the grave was going to be able to hold it. So let's get the spices on him now.
Let's get the body prepared for the burial. This is why Jesus said against the day of my burial, she hath kept this. In Matthew, he says, for in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. That, my friend, was a statement of victory. Easter is more about the death than the resurrection. The anxious moments were not when he was in the grave. It's when he was in the garden. It's when he still had a free will and he could have chosen not to go to Calvary. But once he dies, the resurrection is automatic. Oh, I want to declare to you today, the issue is about us dying at an altar of repentance. There's coming a resurrection. There's coming a great getting up morning. But right now, what do we do? What do we do about it now? The issue is not so much about whether we will resurrect when that trumpet sounds. It's more about whether we will die out to His will. At an altar of repentance. Failure and misfortune will come in this life. The question is, what will we do with it? Do we run out and meet Jesus on the edge of town and question Him? Because our brother has died as Mary did when her brother Lazarus died. Or will we worship Him when the prevailing winds of adversity start to swirl around us? Fortitude developed through failure and misfortune will become wings that will lift us to greater heights. Oh, my friend, it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to have pain and sorrow in this life. The question is, what are you going to do with that sorrow? I remind you today that the headwinds of life create lift. Not just in aerodynamics. It's what takes place in life. Leonardo da Vinci experimented with flying machines as he stood atop Mount Albano precipice and watched his carefully designed flying machine crash into the valley below. He shouted out to his team of friends that were with him and the scientists and engineers and he says, and I quote, there shall be wings. If the accomplishment be not for me, tis for some other. It shall be done. I've come to tell you, there's going to be wings. I said there's going to be wings. Somebody's going to rise up and fly in the midst of the sorrow and the hurt and the pain of adversity. Maybe you don't see the value in what you're going through. But it could be for somebody else that God is going to give you a testimony. David said in Psalms 25.1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The word lift is associated with many things in our culture. The word is used more often as a verb than a noun. As a verb, lift means to direct or to carry from a lower to a higher position, to raise, to elevate, to rise or create, to rise upward from the ground or another support to a higher place. As a noun, it means the act or process of raising to a higher position. In aeronautics, you learn that lift is the force that directly opposes the weight of an airplane. Lift is the component of aerodynamic force that is perpendicular to the relative wind. Drag is the component of aerodynamic force that's parallel to the relative wind. So lift counteracts weight and thrust 
counteracts drag, and that's how a plane flies. It has to conquer drag, and it has to conquer weight. And it does so by these natural forces. Suffice it to say that lift holds an airplane in the sky. If the plane ceases to lift, it ceases to fly. Hebrews 12 and 1 says, let us lay aside every weight and sin that hinders us. We know what sin is, but what about this weight? What is the weight? Oh, my friend, weight is the cares of life. The woes, the trials, the blues, however you want to describe it. Life has a lot of weight. It's got a lot of heaviness. It's got disappointment. But I've come to tell you that natural laws illustrate spiritual laws. Because they have the same author. If we are to counteract the weight in life, the heaviness in life, the pain and sorrow, we must lift. Lift up your head. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your soul. Lift up your hands. Lift up your voice. And lift up your Lord. Because when you begin to lift up the name of Jesus, the heaviness and the weight is nullified. So we got to learn how to lift him up. We got to learn how to elevate. We got to learn how to raise the roof in prayer and praise. And even in the midst of setbacks. How do we do that? Well, first of all, you got to understand that God gives you wings. Wings to overcome the setbacks. And to triumph within what God has set up. To continue the airplane analogy. When the wind hits the front of an airplane, it hits what's called the leading edge of the wing. When it does, it splits. Some of the wind goes over the top of the wing, and some of the wind goes underneath. They meet once again on the trailing edge of the wing. But the wing is designed so that the wind that goes over the top has a greater distance to travel because of the camber or what is known as the design of the wing. They design the wing so that it has a greater distance to travel than the wind that's cutting underneath. The wind cutting underneath has a more direct route. The wind going over the top has to circumnavigate some of those curves that's in the camber of the wing. So the wind cutting underneath has a shorter distance to travel. So it speeds up. And the wind on top can't keep up. Because it has a longer distance to travel. So the faster the wind is on the bottom of the wing, it creates greater pressure than the wind that's on the top of the wing. And as the pressure becomes greater on the bottom, then on the top, it starts to counteract the weight. This is what happens as you speed down the runway. When it reaches rotation, rotation is the speed at which the plane starts to lift. When you reach rotation, it simply means that the pressure is sufficient under the wing to lift. Then you pull back on the yoke and away you go. The greater the weight, the more pressure is needed to get lift and the longer the runway needs to be to build up that pressure. Oh, my friend, the more we worship God, 
the more pressure it puts on hell. Hell wants to keep you down. Hell wants to drive you to the ground. Hell wants you to walk around with your head down and your heart broken, beaten, and grounded. But that's what the weight of sin tries to do. But when I lift up the Lord, the pressure, the atmosphere begins to change. So I say to you today, if you're going through a trial, lift up the Lord. It'll give you a lift. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. How do we create a pressure change? You got to give God quick access to your heart. Make the devil take the long road. I said, you got to give God quick access to your heart. That'll change the pressure. You got to be quick to worship God. If I lift up the Lord, then my own head begins to lift. My own heart begins to lift. You can be discouraged because of what you faced this week. Or maybe even yesterday. But oh, if you just begin to say, great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. I don't know why I'm going through this right now. But I'm going to bless the Lord anyhow. Come on, I feel somebody's going to get the wings in the midst of adversity. I'm going to bless the Lord anyhow. Let me make one other point here. You can't get lift without wind. You need adversity to get elevation. The harder the wind is blowing against you, the quicker you can get lift. That's why planes always take off into the wind. Because when you take off into the wind, you can get lift quicker. Because the harder and the stronger the wind blows against you. It just lifts you higher quicker. Do you know when you read the gospel, I read something this week I've never read before, Bishop. That the Pharisees and Sadducees were so upset about Lazarus being raised from the dead. That they considered going to Bethany and killing Lazarus themselves. Did you know that's in the Gospels? You did, you're smarter than me. I didn't know it until this week. They thought killing Jesus would make this story die. Fame of Lazarus from Bethany being raised again it spread throughout that's when they said we've got to crucify Jesus but some little whiny Pharisee with a pointy head and a bunch of college degrees raised his hand and said I know what we ought to do we gotta kill Lazarus too all the devil knows how to do is throw more adversity at you. The enemy doesn't realize that the stronger the head wins, the quicker we get lift. Let the devil throw everything he can against the people of God. We're going to praise him any stronger. We're going to praise him even louder.
You might think, oh, I could really worship God if I didn't have so many problems. The opposite is true. We don't need the wind at our back to get lift. We need the wind coming at us. Oh, come on, turn your problem into praise makers. Turn your woes into worship. Turn your headaches into high praise. Use the adversity of life to give you wings. You know, the Bible talks a lot about high praise. Psalms 149 verse 6 through various versions talks a lot about this. People always debate what high praise is. I think high praise is praise in the middle of adversity. The greater the opposing force, the higher we go. The greater the wind, the higher we go. Have you ever seen an eagle ride on the currents of a storm? Everything else in nature runs for cover. But an eagle with its seven foot wingspan will soar in the midst of a storm. I've watched them in Alaska with the dark clouds rolling in and everything running for cover and an eagle just launches out. I was made for the storm. I was created. It's in the eagle's DNA. It's the storms that give me the updrafts that I can just soar high above everything else. Oh, my friend, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on winds like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. When Job was beside himself with grief and despair to the point that he questioned God, God said to Job, Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? Oh no, my friend. Nobody has to tell the eagle. He just knows it's a storm. It's time to soar. I say to this great congregation today, if you're facing adversity, you were designed for such a time as this. It's time to soar. It's time to say, God, I'm going to give you praise like never before. I'm not going to wait and see what happens after the hill Golgotha. I'm going to go ahead and put the ointment of my praise into the mix of these troubling stories. I'm not going to wait until I see how it all works out at the end of the book. I'm going to go ahead and bless the Lord now. Mm. Jesus. The eagle doesn't need somebody to tell him to mount up. Get your wings out, Mr. Eagle. It's time to fly. The eagle doesn't need anybody or anything to encourage it. Oh, my friend, we ought to be able to lift up the Lord without any help. We shouldn't need music to get us going. We shouldn't need lights and videos and special effects. We shouldn't need a pat on the back. There ought to just be something inside of us that says, I lift. I lift. This is what I was made to do. It's my nature to worship God. I worship Him in the good and the bad. I worship Him by where I go and what I do and how I talk and what I wear. I worship God. I was designed to lift up the Lord in the midst of adversity.
Oh, my friend, you were designed. This is your day. This is your moment. It's time to lift. The eagle makes its nest on high. Time to take the high ground, my friend. Every time Old Testament people put up false idols to worship, they always try to put them up on high ground. The enemy's always wanting to get on high ground. Over and over we read in the Old Testament, there were high places. There's a military and spiritual advantage to being on the high ground. When you worship God, you climb to higher ground. David said in Psalms 92, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name. Oh, most high. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place, where the most high dwells. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God. You who have done great things, who, O God, is like you. David said, I'm going to lift up some high praise to a God who's on high. Because when you do, He lifts you up above the shadows. Oh, can I get a witness in the house today? Have you ever learned to praise Him in the dark hours? In the stormy weather? I will bless the Lord anyhow. And use adversity to give you wings to overcome every situation. In the ministry of Jesus, he was lifted up in the wilderness and was yet without sin. At the Jordan River, John the Baptist lifted up his eyes and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At Calvary, Jesus was lifted up on the cross and then crucified. Trials and troubles followed Jesus during his ministry. But every vision people had of him after the resurrection was one of Jesus lifted up. Stephen saw him high in heaven, sitting on the right hand of power. Paul saw him on high. John saw him high on a throne. His disciples were led to assemble in a high place, the upper room. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind. Here comes the wind. It's going to make sense of all the adversity. It's going to make sense... Of all the trials. It's going to make sense of the last 56 days. I'm sending a Russian mighty wind. And it's going to lift you up. What changed between the Calvary and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost? They said we got to worship God even though we don't understand what we're facing. Oh my friend, if you can begin to worship God anyhow. Though you don't understand everything that's coming at you. I'm going to lift up the Lord anyhow. I'm going to bless the Lord anyhow. I feel there's a Russian mighty wind in your future oh yes there is because God often uses apparent setbacks as setups for the miraculous in our lives God gives you wings God gives us wings he has given us our own purpose and he will inspire your dreams and goals so that you're drawn to them to achieve them the wings are a given the resurrection is a given. The only thing we have to do is to die out at an altar of repentance. In the Bible, you will read that the altar was not about a place of prayer. The altar was a place of death. It was a place of sacrifice. 
Bible says that we are saved by the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter said if we're to be saved on the day of Pentecost when he preached to that crowd, we must repent of our sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Resurrection is a foregone conclusion. The challenge is the death. The challenge is the altar of repentance. Repentance is where we go when we say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Baptism is the burial. Paul said in Romans 6, 4, for we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Oh, my friend, the Holy Ghost is the resurrection. Resurrection is coming. I just need to prepare for the burial. Oh, I feel like God is talking to some people today about being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the day that the Lord hath made. If you've not been baptized in the name of Jesus, I believe there's some Marys in the house that can prepare for the burial by saying, I'm going to bless the Lord anyhow. I've got some praise. I'm going to go ahead and sprinkle into the atmosphere the praise of my mouth. You say, oh, I've got this great treasure. I've been holding back. I've been keeping. Oh, my friend, there's nothing in this world that's deserving of your praise except the one who created you, breathed into you the breath of life, and died for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you stand to your feet now? I dare say everybody in this building, every human being on this planet has an alabaster box. You're going to give your praise to something. You're going to worship something. Why not worship the one that can give you lift, that can give you joy, turn your sorrow into joy. Why not worship the one who died for your sins? To do that, every single person under the sound of my voice requires a death. Requires dying out to this old man. Everything that we do in this life is to try to protect our domain. But yet when we come to Jesus, we have to come to an altar of repentance. And we have to say, God, I need you. Where every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to invite you on this Easter morning to come to this altar. Would you come step out of where you're standing? Would you come and stand down in this area? And in so doing, you're saying, God, I turn everything over to you. There's been some things I've been holding back. That spikener I've been holding back in my alabaster box. I hid it under the bed. I've been waiting for the perfect time. This is the day. This is the time. This is the moment. Oh, how beautiful people are coming from all over the building. Come on, we still got room for you. They're coming from the back. Just make your way down these aisles. Come down to this altar. This altar is a place where we say, God, forgive me of every sin. If you want to be baptized in the name of Jesus, I invite you to step up on this platform. 
We have baptismal robes, baptismal water. We have everything ready for you. We have people that are standing by to baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. You can make this Easter be something that you'll never forget. Oh, my friend, it's not just a story. It's how God changes us. Come on, I believe I'm looking into the faces of some people today. You've had the headwinds of adversity, maybe even this week, maybe this month. But there's something inside of you that's saying, I'm going to bless the Lord anyhow. I wonder right now all across this building, would you lift up your hands right now? Would you lift up your voice? And would you begin to worship the Lord? Come on, I know it's an act of humility. It's a declaration that requires sacrifice. But in so doing, you open up the door for God to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. Come on, you've been walking with your head down long enough. There's a God that wants to lift you up. Come on, God's got something special for you. That's it. Begin to praise Him now. Begin to use your voice and declare His glory.